0: You should look at Pathfinder as the first mission of our current renaissance, really, of Mars exploration.
1: Mars Pathfinder, a little mission from a long time ago. Nothing special, right? Not so fast pathfinder is more than just a technology demonstration the little lander and its companion rover sojourner blazed a lot of trails in the way we explore mars today from technology to science budgets and the immeasurable impact of inspiration we'll learn all about this spacecraft as celebrating its 20th birthday all this and more on today's episode of the we Martians podcast <laughs> hello and welcome to episode 26 of the we martians podcast i'm your host jake robbins and welcome to summer as i'm recording this we're getting a heat wave right here in vancouver and as someone who loves hot weather i am really stoked I hope everything is as you like it wherever you're listening from as well. Summer is always an interesting time for me in the podcast. I tend to travel a lot and spend a lot of time in the wild hiking and camping. It can make putting these shows together a little tricky, but we're going to see if we can keep the schedule right through the summer. I'm particularly excited for this show. If you remember back in episode 12 when we had the crew of High Seas on, I got to experiment with a more narrative style took a few different interviews, and through some editing was able to build a story out of multiple conversations. It takes a bit more work, but it's so much fun, and I love the product that comes out of it. I haven't done one like that since, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to get back to that kind of show. We're going to talk about NASA's Mars Pathfinder mission today, which celebrates its 20th anniversary since landing today, the day this episode comes out, July 4th, 2017, Independence Day in the United States. When I started putting this show together, I initially thought that it would be a story of a spacecraft that was important in its day, but was overshadowed by the accomplishments that followed from the Phoenix lander, the Mars exploration rovers, and Curiosity. But what I learned was that Pathfinder truly lives up to its name. It's a mission that plays such an important role in what we understand of Mars exploration today, and one that I think every Martian should be thankful for. It was a very pleasant surprise. Now, before we get into the show, I do want to give one thanks to listener Carly Wylie 101 in the UK for their five-star review on iTunes. I really appreciate it, and it gives me an opportunity to remind everyone to swing by iTunes and let me know what you think of the show. A five-star rating or review can help others find it as well. All right, let's get on with it. From CNN International, this is World News. Good afternoon from the CNN Center in Atlanta. I'm Jonathan Mann.
2: And good evening from London. I'm Hilary Bowker, Coming up on this edition of World News: Making Contact. Just minutes from now, the Mars Pathfinder will attempt to land on the red planet. And practicing.
1: July Fourth, nineteen ninety-seven. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory was eagerly awaiting signals from Mars that would tell them that the Pathfinder lander had begun its descent into the atmosphere. Anyone who has followed Mars missions in the last two decades can imagine this scene. Engineers, scientists, and mission managers with eyes locked on computer screens, nervous pacing, hand-wringing. It's a scene we're sort of used to now. Since this mission, 10 more spacecraft have successfully arrived to orbit or on the surface of Mars, and 7 of them were from NASA. 8 of these are still operating today. We know more about Mars than any other planet besides Earth. We've just lived through what is basically the golden age of Mars exploration, but it was not always this way.
0: I mean, the the main thing was that Viking had been 20 years before, and there really was no new information about Mars since then. And so I would say a lot of the interpretations were getting, uh, how should I
1: call it, stale. That's Matt Gollenbeck. Matt was the project scientist for Pathfinder, and I asked him to paint a picture of our scientific understanding of Mars before the mission.
0: It took quite a while for the Viking data to be looked at and decide that there was evidence that Mars may have been warmer and wetter in its ancient past, in the Noachian, And that really took probably 10 years after the images, because the landers found nothing that indicated such. Uh, but uh with the identification of the valley networks and the catastrophic outflow channels, it, it became clear that Mars was wet, could still be wet now, but, but we weren't all that sure. Maybe it was wetter, maybe it was warmer but but we don't know, and we're not sure, and, and that's really been the hallmark of our last 20 years of exploration. I mean, you should look at Pathfinder as the first mission of our current renaissance, really, of Mars exploration, and it's been, you know, the thing that's made it so – terrific to be a part of, is that you have all these different missions getting different information that are piecing together and improving our understanding of Mars. So,
1: But why had we gone so long without a mission? When the last Viking spacecraft turned off in 1982, it started a 15-year period where there were no operating missions there. It's crazy to think about that, given the infrastructure we have at Mars now.
3: Yeah, I started in, at JPL in about 40 years ago. And uh, we were launching the Voyagers at that time in, seven, in the summer of seventy-seven.
1: That's Brian Muirhead. He was the flight systems manager for Pathfinder and later the deputy project manager.
3: Um, prior to that, we uh, the big biggest mission was Viking, and uh, of course, Viking was huge and hugely successful. But um, it, after Voyager, then there was there was issues. Uh, we started Galileo, and Galileo was perpetually on the chopping block. But then with shuttle flying, you know, when shuttle was supposed to fly in 1981, uh, and it was supposed to carry, Galileo was actually going to be one of the first, actually it was before 1981, 81. Galileo was going to be one of the first things it would carry. And, um, and, Gal- and shuttle did not fly until 81, and it had issues, and of course um, we had Challenger, And that set Galileo back all the way to a launch and didn't launch until uh, 89. Um, We'd started Cassini around then. Cassini was, again, a huge Saturn mission. And it was, you know, projected to be very expensive.
1: NASA's strategy at the time for planetary exploration was pretty straightforward. Fly big missions and fly them on shuttle. But through the 1980s, this strategy started to come under fire people started asking questions.
0: It was, could you even do anything for less than a billion dollars? Because we'd had big flagship missions that cost a huge amount of money, were incredibly complex with, you know, dozens of instruments, and that made it even more complex to operate them.
3: (laughs) When the Soviet Union collapsed in in 91, uh, there was a lot of fear about what would happen to NASA's budget. And so Dan Golden, when he came in in 92, basically told JPL and the rest of NASA, we're going to have to do things differently. We're going to have to change uh, the implementation and no more Battlestar Galacticas, basically, or very few. And out of that um, came this talk about a new way of doing business that Wes Huntress was already thinking about. Uh, He was the head of the science program at, at NASA. And and he invented the Discovery program. And the Discovery went from, you know, billion-dollar class missions to, uh, at that time, $150 million in FY92 dollars.
1: The price differences were staggering.
3: If you took Viking and inflated it to $2016, it would be about $5.7 billion. Pathfinder, if you inflate to FY16 dollars, would be... About 365 million. So it's about a factor of uh, 15.
1: This new Discovery program lives on to this day. It's been responsible for such incredible missions like Dawn, Kepler, Messenger, and even the upcoming Mars mission, InSight. Pathfinder was the second mission to launch under that program and the very first one to actually reach its destination.
0: It was a tech demo to show that you could land. And it was faster, better, cheaper, right? That was the mantra at those days. So it was done on
1: the cheap. But just because it was a cheap mission doesn't mean it couldn't be inspiring. While Pathfinder ended up being a simple lander with only a couple instruments on it, it is perhaps most well-known for the Sojourner Rover, a small 10-kilogram semi-autonomous vehicle the size of a microwave. But it was almost an afterthought.
2: I, I actually convinced... Um, the technology people at NASA to fund 25 million dollars for a real rover to go to Mars because uh, they knew that uh, we would never have rovers on Mars unless we had one on Mars to demonstrate that they would work all right. So um, that was my main contribution was money, <laughs> attracting money, um, and then I sort of led the team for. Um, uh, about three three years, and till, um, until I got kicked upstairs to manage the program.
1: That's Donna Shirley. Donna began work on the rover as an engineer in the early 90s, but by the time Pathfinder landed, she had taken on the job of Mars Exploration Program Manager.
2: The inspiration came from the technology development that had been going on for several years. Uh, there were people working on different con- rover concepts funded by uh, the technology program. Uh, everything from great big rovers to little big rovers, d- different kinds of uh, ways of propelling them, different kinds of ways of controlling them. And we just sort of picked and chose from from the ones that had been funded to uh, do technology work.
1: It took all of these circumstances together to realize the Pathfinder mission. Maybe it wasn't the next Battlestar Galactica, as Brian put it, But if cutting your budget was what was needed to be done to get back to exploring the Red Planet, I think we can all agree we'd make the same decision. Just because a mission is funded does not mean it is a fait accompli. There was a huge uphill battle for the designers of Pathfinder, especially given the significantly reduced budget
3: had we built in a huge amount of reserve in the beginning and 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 most of that reserve went to the flight system as it needed to because we were inventing or reinventing 25 technologies in just 3 years so we had to reinvent the viking parachute we had to reinvent the viking heat shield and and the and thermal protection system we had to invent a whole new landing system airbags we had to invent a rapid deceleration system, which was the RAT rocket-assisted deceleration. We invented, we got a a completely new computer, something that had never been flown in deep space, the RAD 6000. I mean, it's just, it's a long list of things that we had to do.
1: And this was just the lander. Donna's team on the rover had further technologies to innovate. Remember that at this time, NASA had never even operated a single robotic rover on another world before.
2: Right, and we actually used two different uh, kinds of technology for control. Uh, there was one uh, type that had been funded to, um, uh, it, it, was, it was to control it from sitting back on Earth. I mean, here is the concept. You sit on Earth and you send signals to the rover and tell it which way to, to move based on pictures that you take from the rover that show the, the scenery Okay, so here's the scenery and you plot a course through the, through the rocks and all the hazards. And then you send the course up to the, to the rover and tell it which way to go. Then there was a the second kind of technology, which was actually on the rover, which was, gosh, here I am going along and I run into an obstacle, uh, which, which the uh, previous Uh, pictures didn't show. Okay, now what do I do? So I turn and go this way and go that way until I get successfully around the obstacle and then keep going. So there were really two different kinds of technology at work.
1: Coming up with autonomous rover control systems was doubly impressive when you think about the resources that were available at the time.
2: It was just that the computing technology wasn't there at the time. So, um, what you wanted to do is to have the computing technology on the ground where you could have bigger computers. I mean, they weren't very big either in those days, but uh, you could have better computers than you could carry around on a rover. And uh, then you could do all your thinking on the ground, and then you could send the commands uh, up, and the rover could follow the commands. And then the rover on board had very simple algorithms, just like if you run into something, turn right. If you run into something, turn left, whatever. Very, very simple uh, algorithms. And it was just mainly how to stay out of trouble.
1: Over on the science side, things were tricky as well. Pathfinder was a technology demonstration mission. Its chief objectives were to demonstrate that you could send science instruments to the surface inexpensively, not so much to actually do the science when you're there. But the science team was not about to let this opportunity go to waste
0: it quickly became clear that if you put an APXS on the rover, you could now measure the composition of rocks. So there became one major science objective. And then you had to look around, and that was the uh, IMP, or the Imager for Mars Pathfinder, and that allowed us to see the surface in color. And then finally, you had the surface station, so why not put a weather station on it? And even perhaps more importantly, measure the atmosphere as you came in—an atmospheric science investigation. So those were the big three science investigations, where we're looking at rocks and soils with uh, APXS. That's the chemistry, and and trying to get at the mineralogy of the rocks. Uh, The imaging would give you some idea what the geology and geomorphology was like wherever you landed, uh, and then characterizing the atmosphere as you went through it, and then after you landed, uh, the meteorology.
1: It was ambitious. Faster, better, cheaper was just that. Not only did you have to spend less, but you needed to move quicker and provide more value for the taxpayer dollars. And it was risky. Uh,
3: Class A missions are... uh are fully redundant, cross-strapped, and, you know, we do everything we can to, to assure success. But on Pathfinder, we were single-string. So about the only thing that was redundant was the electronics that uh, fired our pyros and our transponders. Um, and beyond that, one fault, and we're out.
1: I was curious to learn how they had accomplished it.
3: We did not do a lot of paper, um, and we, did, we moved fast. And so, if somebody came up with a pro- had a problem and they needed money, they came to me, and I decided on the spot. We didn't have a lot of complicated uh, change review boards and things like that. It was really their judgment, their argument, and my judgment and my assessment of where it stood relative to the the overall budget and the overall schedule, because we had to make a hard launch date. So it was uh, very much a uh, Team effort in which the level of trust and competence and, and, and concern about making sure everything was done right.
1: Being a small team on a small project did have some built in benefits, though.
3: We were flying under the radar. Cassini was the bright spot on the radar. Um, a lot of people thought we wouldn't be successful, so they were kind of hanging back. We didn't get a lot of institutional oversight. Our director, Ed Stone, was willing to support us and and so we we not being on the radar was a big help
1: in the end it was a team effort
0: and 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 a lot of it had to do with the exceptional engineers i mean the engineers that we have at JPL and that worked on Pathfinder were were amazing. And they could see that we had this blank canvas of a spacecraft. And, you know, who wants to send a red brick to Mars? If you're going to go there, you might as well try to learn something.
1: After just a little over three years of development and assembly time, the Pathfinder and Sojourner rover completed all their assembly and testing. The spacecraft was mated with its upper stage and mounted on the end of a rocket for launch from Cape Canaveral on December 6, 1996. Matt and Donna described the experience.
0: I mean, uh, launches, there's there's times when science leaves you, right? So, so th- we launched on a Delta II rocket that is, and probably still is, among the most reliable launch vehicles that exist in the world. And it's successful, you know, 95 to 97% of the time. Well, that still means that Three to five times out of a hundred, the thing is going to blow up, right? And you don't know when that's going to occur. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're there, and basically, you're just praying because there's nothing else you can do. <laughs> you light
2: the fuse, and the thing goes off. You can go stand on a on a, a, a park near the near the launch facilities and watch it take off and a night launch is really terrific and that's what Pathfinder did. It
0: only launches one second each day so it did not have a variable cyst upper stage so it had to launch only at one second each. That was your launch window if you will during the day and it was at 2 in the morning or something. It was some ungodly hour. T 15 seconds. 12.
1: T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, green board, 5, 4, 3, main engine start, 1, 0, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with Mars Pathfinder, and the vehicle has cleared the tower.
2: Really spectacular, you know, this flames and fire, and then it's Got this big arc goes off into the sky, flaming away like mad, and
0: and you're counting the rockets falling off the solids falling off. Is that the right number? And then you're and then you're looking for the next three solids to light, and you're going like, ah, <laughs> because that's all you can do. There's nothing else you can do.
3: <laughs> Initial set of solids
2: falling away. All things look good. One minute, twelve seconds into the flight. Everybody's out there going, ooh, ah, and uh, it, was, it was really cool.
0: So you work on something, wow, well, we worked on Pathfinder four years, five years with the phase A. And I mean, that was your full-time job. And now you're sticking this thing on top of a launch vehicle that could blow up. So, you know, you're kind of attached.
1: And just like that, NASA was on its way to Mars for the first time in 20 years. More about the groundbreaking Pathfinder mission and its exciting landing when we return.
2: My name is Anthony, and I'm a Martian.
1: My name is Paul, and I'm a Martian. My name is George, and I am a Martian. Martian. I love what I do. But while the We Martians podcast is and always will remain free, putting it together is not. But that's where you can help. By contributing as little as $1 per month, you can join me in exploring Mars. Pay what you want for as long as you want and get access to cool perks like bonus content, chat hangouts, and the opportunity to submit questions for interviews. Head over to patreon.com slash we martians and sign up today. That's patreo ncom ncom slash we martians and tell the world that you are a martian. Thanks for joining us. This is one of those moments scientists have been waiting for. Like nervous parents, they've been watching the Mars Pathfinder move through millions of kilometers of space headed to the Red Planet. And Right now, the spacecraft should be approaching its final descent. It's July 4th, 1997. Seven months after its launch from Florida, the Mars Pathfinder with the small Sojourner rover locked up inside is about to enter the Martian atmosphere and head for the surface. It's a day that is a long time coming and one of the most nerve-wracking parts of any Mars surface mission. And there has never been an EDL sequence this scary before.
3: You know, Viking did it very differently. They went into orbit. Uh, they, came down, they, they came down much slower. They came down uh, on a final propulsive landing. Um, it was judged that, we, that to do Viking's propulsive landing would have been prohib- prohibitively expensive. So that's why we invented the airbags.
1: It was an innovative landing technique. Instead of softly touching down using rockets, the spacecraft would literally be tossed at the surface, safely enclosed in a series of durable airbags, eventually rolling to a stop. But it did not reduce the complexity or danger of the sequence.
3: We were, you know, we we did a direct entry, uh, which so we come in fast. We were coming in at like over twenty thousand kilometers an hour. Um, We had to do more than 50 specific events, uh, separations, deployments, etc. at exactly the right time.
1: Brian, Donna, and Matt were all there at JPL in Pasadena, California to watch the event transpire.
0: There are two buildings at JPL where... Uh, You actually control spacecraft on another planet and they they have backup power and generators and all the stuff so that you won't ever have an outage. And uh, we were in the uh, SFOF building, which is Building Two Thirty at JPL. It's the old historical one; no windows in the entire building. And and what they do is they build what's called an MSA, or Mission Support Area, where you actually control the spacecraft from, and you have all these rooms that have different purposes. And I was the only scientist because I was a member of the project team.
2: Well, my job was to uh, to talk to a CNN reporter. Uh, standing outside on the 4th of July in Southern California in a suit. <laughs> so what I was trying to do was to avoid dying in the heat, uh, but I was also explaining what was going on. And I was we had a little model of the lander and the rover um, on top of a garbage can. So I was pointing out to the reporter, you know, what we're, what was happening with these little models on top of this garbage can. And uh, that was that was fun.
3: We knew, you know, we had about, I, I think it was like 11 or 12 minute time delay. And um, so we were living through this surreal experience of knowing that the future has already happened.
1: And just as planned, things did start to happen. Um, and so
0: what happens is during landing... Um, the spacecraft sent tones. It had a variety of different uh, radios that would send out tones that told you that certain events had occurred on the way down. So when it enters, you know, the heat shield falls away, there's a tone, it tells you the heat shield, sorry, the back shell falls away. And then each event, the parachute going out and so on, and then you lose contact when you go through the ionizing radiation being on the heat shield and then you have to reacquire it and you're going like this okay please get it you know
3: and so we knew that we'd hit the atmosphere we knew the parachute had had deployed then we kind of lost then we lost contact Um, and um, we were using simple semaphores just just dashes and dots
0: basically Morse code and then it bounces and you lose the things spinning around in the first bounces you know 100 feet high you're not communicating with it and you're and that's the critical time right
3: and so we had guys at madrid at the dsn station in madrid all looking for this signal and um you know there's always issues associated with you know a deep space signal so they were doing the clever things that they do and um and we hear this this voice uh uh me Asmar saying you know I, I see something coming in and out of the spectrum and um and of course we all kind of like wow you know oh my gosh we, we may have got it
0: and, and then we finally got um with the response that the thing had survived it was sitting on the ground but the airbags were still inflated and we got the tone so
3: and then we hear then we hear i still get tears in my eyes when i hear those words that you know we have a strong signal and the beauty of that was that Pathfinder had landed right side up. So it's a little antenna, it's a little round antenna about maybe an inch and a half in diameter, spewing out bits at, you know, probably 10 watts and and being picked up on the 70 meter dish in, in Madrid. I mean, that was magic.
2: And then uh, when it actually landed, uh, you know, you could see the, the the guys up in the in the guys and girls up in the um control center you know jumping up and down and carrying on and you know i i all i can it was very the sun was so bright that all i could see was this little tiny television thing but i could see people jumping up and down so i knew that it had worked and, and that was that was a terrific moment to know that the landing had been successful because that was it was very difficult we never landed on mars Uh, with a budget of $150 million before.
0: So the first thing you got was that we had survived. And then there was a whole series of pre-programmed things that, remember, it was a tetrahedron. It had to figure out which way was down. Well, it turned out we had bass pedal down, and then it opened up three of the Triangular panels to now make the spacecraft available that it could be seen,
3: and of course we um, had planned that after we landed and, and the rover opened or the lander opened up, we would take pictures, and uh, all of this happening on the Fourth the of July, and uh, and we got back a set of um, postage stamp images that we posted to, that we pasted together. Not live digitally, and uh, and then we had the picture of the rover on the pedal with the Mars surface and the and some mountains off in the distance. Uh, just later that day, and uh, that really told us we'd made it.
0: And um, so the surprising thing, from a scientist point of view, was um, we we selected a location on Mars to land that was very rocky. We knew it was very rocket. We selected it because we wanted rocks so the rover could put its instrument against rocks. And in fact, the rationale for the selection of the site was the more different kind of rocks, the better, because we had no idea what Mars was made of, right? (laughs) I mean, that's how primitive it was. (laughs) So so the first uh, signal was, it told us the spacecraft was healthy and the base pedal was just about flat. And we're going. Oh no, that's not good. If there's all these rocks, you would expect the base pedal maybe would be on an angle, right? It would be up against something. And we're going. Oh my God, maybe we weren't right, and there were all. And then the first image didn't come down till late in the day or something. And and we were we were jumping up and down because the first image showed rocks. There were rocks everywhere. <laughs> So, my first explanation was, rocks, rocks, you wanted rocks, look at those rocks. <laughs> we wanted rocks and they were there.
2: <laughs> it took a while for the rover and the lander to sync up so that their, their radios were at the same temperature. And um, so, it, you couldn't, we couldn't send the right commands to the rover for, I think, a couple of days. And finally, the lander and the rover radios got synced up. And they sent commands to the rover to get off the lander. And, and one of the, one of our engineers had sent a, a, a program to control these ramps that the rover was going to go down. So it had like six pictures. And so the first picture, you could, nothing happened. Oh my gosh, what happened? And then the second picture, you could see the front of the rover. And then the third and fourth and fifth pictures, you could see it going down the ramp and, on, surface, surface, uh, on the soil, six wheels on soil, and that was really spectacular.
1: They'd done it. After a fast and furious development period, breaking new ground with new technologies and on an extremely tight budget, the team at JPL had landed on Mars for the first time in 20 years. It was a tremendous accomplishment that did not go unnoticed.
0: Um, And the day after we landed for a week, we had, you know, back then it's before the Internet (laughs) or much of one, uh, we had front page headlines for a week in every major newspaper in the country. That has never happened. There's no other mission that's done that. and, And it was and it was the drama. of Could the rover get off the lander and could it get to the next
2: rock? And and people were enthralled by it. What was neat about Pathfinder was that the team was mostly quite young, and we didn't have standardized shirts or anything like that and uh, So the news media made a big deal out about you know how these kids were uh, were operating this mission and and uh, a lot of cartoons came out with that topic and we had the radio our radio guy uh whose name was Gordon uh, was wearing shorts with suspenders. <laughs> And I, I think he had a flowered shirt on or something. and there were massive people were horrified and they said, you know, how come these people are not dressed properly and they're jumping up and down and all this sort of stuff. And it really stuck a chord, struck a chord with, um, with the public. And so it was, everybody loved it.
1: Pathfinder's mission was short-lived by the standards of today's Mars missions. But its accomplishments and its legacy extend far beyond its surface operation.
2: Pathfinder was, uh, you know, practically a miracle. Frankly, that nobody nobody believed that with such a small amount of money uh, that you could actually make this thing work.
3: A lot of people would have given you very good odds. We would not have been successful in but in many ways.
2: And it, it worked beyond its. Um, it was its mission was only supposed to be. I think it was only supposed to be uh, a month, and it lasted for 90 days. And the rover's mission was only supposed to be a week, and it lasted for 90 days.
3: One of our Level 1 requirements was to demonstrate NASA's commitment to low-cost planetary exploration. And um, you know that's a political objective, and, and we met that.
1: Pathfinder contributed greatly to science, too.
3: Pathfinder was a technology demonstration mission. It wasn't a science mission. But in fact, it produced an enormous amount of science, and it has enabled all the science missions that have, that have come after it.
0: The, the main science findings were the rocks were, were silica-rich, which was a huge surprise. And in fact, they looked like they were andesites, which formed by fractional crystallization of a primary melt from the mantle, which is a basalt um, it turns out that was a true, we think that was a true chemistry measurement that was put into context by Mars Global Surveyor that showed that that was probably a weathering rind. The underlying rock was probably basalt, but it had weathered on the surface. And that means that the rocks can interact with the atmosphere, just like here on Earth. Um, but at the time, we's going, oh my gosh, we have differentiation. On the Earth, you make You make andesites by plate tectonics. And, of course, we didn't think plate tectonics was happening. So so there was very interesting chemistry to suggest things were more Earth-like than Moon-like on
1: Mars. Matt tells us the science also supported the growing idea of Mars's wet, warmer past.
0: We found uh, what looked like to be a conglomerate. It was a rock with these rounded pebbles that were cemented together. That was found by the rover. Without the mobility, we would have never seen that. Well, that forms by running water that rounds those cobbles and then cements them together. That suggests the wetter past and liquid water running across on the surface for a long period of time.
1: He also notes that the atmosphere was very dynamic.
0: We saw much more uh, dynamic atmosphere. Uh, the temperature between your feet and your nose was a difference of like 30 degrees uh, Celsius as in the early morning as the atmosphere was trying to equilibrate. Accl- we saw dust, wind vortices, uh, little uh, dust devils that, that came across the spacecraft, and we saw the pressure and the wind speeds change, a much more dynamic atmosphere than we, than we
1: thought. Pathfinder and Sojourner also contributed to a long engineering heritage that lives on today.
2: It was using technology that had never been used before, like the parachutes and uh, uh, the the airbags. Nobody had ever used airbags to land before. And uh, we've done a lot of testing, but, you know, testing things on Earth is not as the same as actually using them on Mars. And so there was some really fantastic work done by the navigators and by the uh, people who designed the... Uh, all the elements of the landing system and so on and and those were demonstrated that were then used on later missions just as much as as the um, the landed components themselves so pathfinder really demonstrated a lot of technology that then led to gee i guess we can really do these things
3: the mobility system we invented for sojourner is the same one that's flown on all the rovers
0: since so so it's an example of if you take some risk, the payoff can be huge. It can be way huge. Um, you know, we couldn't build a Tripoli redundant system. Um, it was really kind of done like in your garage kind of thing. But look at the payoff. And, and the real payoff is that without Pathfinder, there would be no Mars exploration program. Without the popularity of that mission, you can't imagine there without Pathfinder, you can't imagine a Mars exploration rover Spirit and Opportunity. I mean, they, they were direct descendants. And without Spirit and Opportunity, you can't imagine Curiosity. There was the next. And if you had to start somewhere, and that's that's really what Pathfinder did.
3: Well, I guess one, more than anything else, we proved that mobility is critical. We knew mobility was important. We knew Viking was really limited because what it could do, couldn't do <laughs> – Um, without mobility, uh, and we really proved uh, the power of, of mobility.
0: We sort of pointed out that a rover could get incredibly important information that a stationary lander just can't get. Having the mobility, the ability to go up to rocks and get their composition, to look at them close up the way geologists do here on Earth, the ability to go and have different vantage points of those rocks and to place instruments up against them and get information that that's what opened people's eyes to the fact that a roving platform was really critical
3: there was a lot of places where we just broke new fundamentally new ground
0: the legacy of Pathfinder was that it had been 20 something years It it's been a generation since anybody saw the surface of a planet from being on the planet uh, you know a human eye view as opposed to some satellite overhead looking straight down we're not used to looking at that even if you're in an airplane you're not you're still kind of looking off at the side <laughs> but being down on the ground and looking ahead of well that's something that's innately that we're used to looking and here we put a spacecraft and a rover that was looking at that view and it just blew everyone away that you could, you could design something for next to nothing in today's standards for missions. And you could introduce a whole new world to people in a way they had never seen it before.
1: The nice thing about looking back on this mission 20 years later is that that new generation that Matt is talking about is all grown up now.
4: I was interested in space, but I was not specifically interested in Mars. I just liked all things space, and Sojourner is what made me interested specifically in Mars.
1: That's Tanya Harrison. You might remember her from Episode 8, when she told us all about gullies on Mars. She's a PhD now and has worked on a number of different missions exploring the red planet.
4: Seeing some of the last images that came back from Voyager was a really big deal, but to hear that we had something on the surface of another planet that we could drive around and take pictures with, that that really struck a chord with me. Like, it, it was something more interactive than just something flying through space, taking pictures, at least in the mind of a, a child. Maybe that was the first hints of becoming a geologist. Like, oh, hey, this thing goes up and touches the rocks. We get to see them close up and not just the entire planet as a sphere as we're flying by.
1: For Tanya and for many others, the Sojourner rover and the Pathfinder spacecraft played a special role in influencing her life.
4: It's like the thing that fed into my interest, and then a couple years later NASA ran the Mars Millennium Project. And if it wasn't for Sojourner, I don't think I would have gone into that project, and that's the project that told me I wanted to be a Mars scientist specifically.
1: Regardless of their relationship to the mission... Whether they're an engineer, a scientist, a citizen, or even Mark Watney, who in the now famous book The Martian by Andy Weir uses the old spacecraft to call home, everyone agrees that Pathfinder is a key cog in the machine that is Mars exploration.
0: It was those hints that that whetted the appetite and made just the humanity so excited. So we had all these hints that Mars was much more interesting than the moon. And in
2: fact, more like the Earth. Of course, the later missions, Spirit and Opportunity, uh, were much more expensive. But they, they learned a lot from Pathfinder and the, and the Sojourner uh, that then was applicable.
3: Part of the legacy applies to the Mars program, but it also is beyond the Mars program. And that's, and that's how we use technology. Up to that point, technology was, was kind of feared. Um, On Pathfinder, we changed that model. Technology was essential. We proved that you could could depend on technology if you did a good job of, of proving it would work before you used it.
4: I think the biggest thing is that Sojourner just kind of opened a door. It gave us the confidence that we could do something like that on another planet. We didn't just have to send these stationary landers. We could do something more ambitious.
1: One of the best parts about doing this podcast is that every episode is a personal learning experience for me. Despite all the preconceptions or existing knowledge I think I have, delving into a new topic or idea always ends up surprising me and teaching me something new. Pathfinder truly is a groundbreaking mission. It set the stage in so many ways for the suite of Mars missions that followed. In the family tree of Mars exploration, Pathfinder is the trunk, and the technology, the science, and the people that today show us these amazing things from this amazing world trace their lineage all the way back to it. You know, you could even make an argument that this podcast exists because of Pathfinder, because so much of the data, the scientists, the missions I cover here every three weeks could not have existed without this brave little spacecraft who forged a path across the stars to the surface of a red, rocky world not too far from home. That's all, Martians. I hope you enjoyed digging into the history books to learn about this awesome little lander and rover. I'd like to thank Brian, Donna, Matt, and Tanya for sharing their experiences with me about Pathfinder. The people who come on the show are very busy people. It's one thing to ask them to talk about the work they're currently on, but another thing altogether to reminisce about a mission long past. In the show notes on www.wemartians.com, you'll find some old archived footage of the CNN coverage for the landing, as well as some other documents I used to research it. As always, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcatching app, and be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at We underscore Martians, as well as Facebook and Instagram at WeMartians. Consider becoming a patron over at www.patreon.com slash Martians for as little as $1 a month, or if that's not your jam, write us a review on iTunes. It helps others find the show. That's all. Have a great July, and we'll talk soon. Ciao!